the Gospel of John, chapter number 19. John's Gospel, chapter number 19 is where we're going to be today and uh, try to preach to you for a few minutes from that portion of Scripture. Um, I have much that I want to say and I'm going to try to get it out to you just as quickly as I can. Several weeks ago, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John and several weeks ago, I sat down at my, my desk at home and began to map out weeks in advance of sermons and because I knew Easter was coming and I wanted us to get to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. And um, of course, that means if we're going to get to the empty tomb next Sunday, we're going to have to find ourselves at the foot of the cross this Sunday. And so you pray for me. We'll preach out of John chapter 19. But we'll also use a lot of text out of John chapter 18. We'll put it on the screen, but if you want to leave your Bible open, that may help you to follow along. But I want to read uh, chapter 19 for the sake of text, beginning in verse 16. And uh, let's read a few verses together. John chapter 19, verse 16 says, And they delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And... Uh, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, two others with him, one on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Look at verse 25, please. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. And can you imagine Mary's heart as that sword pierced her that day? And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, Mary Magda, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. And after this Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it, uh, uh, and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Father, this morning we stand in awe of the scripture that we just read. Lord, we do not understand Calvary. We marvel at it. Lord, we marvel how that God could love us so much that he would suffer and endure the things that you suffered and endured just so that you could have fellowship with us. And Lord, while we marvel at it and we do not understand it, we thank you for it and we praise you for it. Lord, we are thankful for Calvary. We are thankful for forgiveness of sins. Lord, we're thankful for heaven that has been prepared. Lord, as we try to preach, use us and help us. We need you in Jesus' name and amen. I am always humbled when I approach a sermon on Calvary. The portion of Scripture that I just read to you is so great that I feel completely unqualified to deal with it. 
Yet at the same time, I know that dealing with this text is the reason that God called me into ministry. In fact, if there was no text of Calvary, then there would be no gospel for us to minister in. Last Sunday morning, we walked with Judas and with Peter. Both of those men in chapter 18 denied their Lord. They both failed. They both faltered. Of course, we know that one man repented and was forgiven. The other man, overcome with grief, took his own life. He could have been forgiven too, but he never sought that forgiveness. This morning, there are so many ways that we could look at the portion of Scripture. We could look at the cries, the, the seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross. We could look at it as, as a division of hours as He spends several hours on the cross. But today I think that uh, I want to once again look at the characters in our story. I, I want us to look at maybe three sets of characters. There are many that are involved, but three sets of characters. Because I think that they will help us tell this story and they will help us to see a bigger picture that is found in this story. I want to preach for a minute today on this thought, Calvary and its characters. Calvary and its characters. Our first characters will actually be found in chapter 18. They are Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas. And in Annas and Caiaphas we will see a picture of rejection. A picture of rejection. Look with me in chapter 18 and verse 12, please. The Bible said, Then the band and captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Caiaphas first, for he was the father, or the, to Annas first, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Drop down to verse 19. Then the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resorted, and in secret I have said nothing. Why askest thou me? Uh, why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. After Jesus is arrested in chapter number 18, he is taken to the Jews for the sake of examination. At this time, the Jews were being ruled by the Romans, and therefore they did not have power on their own to execute, to publicly execute a prisoner. If they were going to execute Jesus, or any prisoner for that matter, legally they had to get the Romans involved. And if they were going to get the Romans involved, then they would have to have some sort of an accusation. They would have to have some sort of a charge worthy of a death penalty. They needed a suitable charge. The problem was that Jesus really had never done anything worthy of death. In fact, he was perfectly whole and perfectly sinless. There were no accusations that they could bring. And so they needed to question him so that he would maybe say something to maybe incriminate himself that they could come up with a charge against him. So first they take him to the home of Annas. Annas does some sort of informal questioning with Jesus. 
Annas hoped that he could maybe find something that would incriminate him. Uh, specifically, uh, Annas hoped that Jesus would say something that was anti-Roman. If he could say something that was anti-Roman, that would be the quickest, quickest, quickest path to crucifixion. This wasn't the first time they did this. You remember when they came to Jesus and they tried to trip him up and ask him, uh, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to pay his taxes? And Jesus, wiser than they were, said, Well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God. They, they, they were trying to find something that they could incriminate him with. Um, but the informal questioning of Annas proves unfruitful. And so in the middle of the night... They take him before the Sanhedrin. Now this is too much information, but legally they could not try him in the middle of the night. They had to wait till the next day, but, but they do another informal trial. Again, finding something, trying to find something to condemn Jesus for. The scriptures tell us that they call in witnesses, but no two witnesses can agree. Finally, two false witnesses come in. And the only accusation they can bring against Jesus is that he said he would tear the temple down and in three days rebuild it. And what is amazing to me as I read this text is that the entire time they question Jesus, one false witness after another, one lie after another, the scriptures tell us that Jesus holds his peace. Now, I'm going to just ask you this. I don't want you to answer my question because I know the answer. But how many of you could have held your tongue when somebody was so blatantly and openly lying about you? I think we would all speak up and say, now wait a minute, that's not right. Wait a minute, I never said that. Wait a minute, I never did the things that you're accusing me of. But Jesus knew that all these things must be fulfilled. And so he held his tongue. As Isaiah the prophet said, he was as a, a lamb dumb before it shears. So he opened not his mouth. Never said a word as they accused him of crimes that he had never done. Well, when Jesus doesn't say anything, according to Matthew 26, uh, 63, Annas places him under oath forcing him to now speak. But when Jesus held his priest, the high, the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God. To be adjured, that adjuration meant that he had to speak. He did not have a choice. I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And having to answer, Jesus says in verse 64, Thou hast said... Nevertheless, I tell you this, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That was all the evidence they needed. They believed that Jesus' claim to being the Son of God was blasphemy. And blasphemy was worthy of death. They had everything they needed at this point. Now I'll say this. Every time I read the Gospels, I am struck by the willful ignorance on the part of the Pharisees. I am struck by that. I say that they are willingly ignorant because these men had all the head knowledge that they needed. They had all the information they needed to know who Jesus was and to accept Him as their Messiah. 
do you remember when uh, the three wise men, we say there's three, we don't know how many, but, but when the three wise men come to Jerusalem and they're seeking the newborn king in Matthew, what is it, chapter 2, I believe 2, 3, somewhere around in there. And they go before Herod and say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Well, they come together, they consult with one another, and uh, the scholars come back and say, the Scripture said he was to be born in Bethlehem. Well, they knew where he was to be born. I've got a question. If they knew where he was to be born, why wasn't they looking for him there? Why was men, Gentiles from the east, looking, but they weren't looking? Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 tells us the timing of his birth, but they still weren't looking for him. Every miracle Jesus did was a prophetic sign, a messianic sign. Every lame man that got up and walked, every blind man that saw, every dumb man that spoke, and every deaf man that heard was a messianic sign. Every miracle said, this is him. This is the one the prophets have talked about. This is Messiah. They should have known who he was. They heard his sermons. They heard his words. I, I, I remember one time they come to arrest him. But while they were about to arrest him, he started speaking, started preaching, and they come back empty-handed. And the Pharisees said, why didn't you take him? They said, well, sirs, never a man spake like this man. There's something different about him. His words have power and his words have authority. They had all the knowledge they needed, yet they chose not to believe who he was. I'm struck with that every time I read the Gospels. But when I come to the end of the Gospels, I am struck by the fact that I believe these men did know who he was he just wasn't who they wanted him to be. And because he wasn't who they wanted him to be, they decided to do away with him and kill him. You can almost understand them being a little skeptical, a little apprehensive at the beginning, but by the end, there is no doubt, there is no question. They know he is who he is claimed to be, but they would rather crucify him than lose their position. Now, I'm going to say this. I want you to agree with me. If you don't, I'm still going to roll with it because I think I'm right. There are many people in that same category. They are willingly ignorant of who Jesus Christ is. It is not that they can't accept Him. It is that they choose not to accept Him. They have all the Scriptures. They have all the, the knowledge. They could accept Christ. They just choose not to accept Christ. Now let me say this about Annas and Caiaphas and their rejection. I believe they rejected Christ because they felt like they were too smart to accept Him. They felt like they were too smart to accept Him. The Bible says this in John 18, 19, And the high priest then asked Jesus of His disciples and of His doctrine. Now, if you think about that question, or that line of questioning about His disciples, about His doctrine, that's a silly question. That is a question just for the sake of asking a question. And I've met some people that are so smart, they're going to question everything. They, they, they're going to ask a question just for the sake of asking a question because they love to question, they love to debate. Jesus even responds in the very next verse and says, That's a silly question. I have preached my doctrine every day in the synagogue. You have heard me. You have seen me. For three years you've heard my doctrine and now you're asking me about it. You know where I stand on some things. 
But there are some people that would rather debate the Bible uh, than be confronted with the Bible. They would rather debate the gospel than be confronted with the gospel. They want to try to find flaws and errors. They want to try to find debates and question. And the reason they are so adamant on debating the gospel is because to accept the gospel means they would have to do something with it. As long as they're questioning it, then they don't have to accept it and agree with it. But to be confronted with Jesus Christ and be confronted with His death, burial, and resurrection causes all men to make a decision. When you see Him for who He is, you have to either accept Him or reject Him. And people don't want to be faced with that. You remember in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, and uh, Jesus began to confront her with who she was. Go get your husband. Of course, she had had five in that story. And, and he begins to say things to her like, If you would have asked me, I would have gave you living water and you would never be thirsty again. And if I give you living water, it will be rivers of water flowing from your, 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 your life. And he is presenting himself to her. And when she begins to realize who he is, she starts questioning. She says something like this. She said, oh, well, maybe you're a prophet. So, you know, our fathers say we ought to worship in this mountain, but, but the Jews say we ought to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't talking to her about where to worship, where was the right place to worship. She was just trying to find something to question. Because some people, when confronted with the gospel, want to try to find a flaw with it or a question in it. And Annas and Caiaphas, they would rather debate Jesus than accept Jesus. They were too smart to accept Him. Not only that, I believe that some people don't accept Christ because they think they're too smart to accept Him. Some people don't accept Christ because they're afraid He's going to mess up their lives. John chapter 18, verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas under the judgment hall, and it was early and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled that they might eat the Passover. Now, understand the wording of verse 28. They have arrested Jesus. They have finally reached the decision that they're going to accuse Him of blasphemy. Pilate is the one that has the ability to pass the death sentence. So they go to Pilate's hall to bring this accusation and get the judgment that they're seeking. Crucifixion. But there's a problem. When they get to Pilate's judgment hall, they can't go in. Because Passover is in just a few hours. And for them to go into the home of a Gentile would mean they would become ceremonially unclean. And if they were ceremonially unclean, they couldn't take the Passover in a few hours. Now you think about the hypocrisy in that passage of Scripture. These men are trying to sentence an innocent man to death. They are willing to bring a false charge to put him to death. But they're worried about being ceremonially unclean so they can take the Passover. Allow me to point out not only the hypocrisy, but the, the, the irony. They are worried about eating the Passover lamb. And at the same time, right there in their presence stands the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. We can't go into Pilate's house. We want to eat the Passover, but we want to crucify him. The one that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. 
Some people reject Christ because they're afraid He's going to mess up their lives. These Jews were more worried about their traditions and their lives as Jewish leaders than they were about accepting who Jesus was. They are more concerned about what they would have to give up or what they would have to start. And they don't want Christ because He's going to mess up some things in their lives. There are some people, in fact, there are more people that are in this boat than you realize. You understand there are some people that won't get saved and some people that won't get committed to church because they know if they get saved or if they get committed to church, it's going to mess some things up for them. They're not going to be able to continue to drink, do drugs, do the things that they do. If, if I commit to Christ, I'm, I'm going to lose out on that. You say, oh, people don't really act like that preacher. I have personally had people tell me that. I know if I got back in church, I'd have to give up my drinking. There are people that enjoy their weekends too much to get saved or to commit to church. They want to go fishing, they want to go golfing, they want to have that day to just sit on the recliner and watch TV and do nothing. There are some people that enjoy their immorality too much to come to Christ. They know that the, the, the relationship they're in or some of the things they're doing are immoral and so they can't come to Christ because if they do, they're going to, have to, they're going to lose those things. Some people won't come because of money. I've had people say to me, all the church wants is my money, and I'm not going because all they want is my money. They are unwilling to accept Christ because He would mess some things up for them. But when we have that attitude, it shows how nearsighted we really are. Because all we see is the here and the now. And if we lost sight of the here and now, and we got sight of eternity we would realize that eternity is much more important than the things we're enjoying right now. So there's Annas and Caiaphas. They're a picture of rejection. There's, second of all, Pilate. Pilate. Pilate is a picture of indecisiveness. Pilate is a picture of indecisiveness. Look at verse 28, please. Chapter 18, verse 28, I should say. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the judgment hall. And it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, for that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then Pilate said to them, Take ye him, judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. As soon as the Sanhedrin have their accusation, they take Jesus to the palace of Pilate. Pilate was in Jerusalem because it was the time of the Passover. There was a heavy Jewish presence in Jerusalem at this time. And Rome wanted to have somebody there to kind of oversee things. Now, I, I'm not going to take time for this, but Pontius Pilate was, a, was an interesting character. He ruled the Jews from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, and during that time they didn't like him very much. He was ruthless, he was manipulative, and according to our text, he was very indecisive. It was Warren Wearsby that said of Pilate, His handling of the trial of Jesus reveals 
He was an indecisive man, a weak man, a compromising man. The Romans prided themselves on justice and on judgment. But Pilate's not concerned about justice. Pilate is only concerned about protecting himself and pleasing the people. If the story of Annas and Caiaphas is a story of rejection, and no doubt it is, the story of Pilate is a story of indecisiveness. I'm not going to take time to read all of these verses, but if you read them yourselves, you'll find that when the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, he takes him into his judgment hall and questions him. After his questioning, he comes back out to the Jews, and this is his verdict. I find no fault in him at all. Well, the Jews aren't happy with that. He has reached a decision, but seeing they're unhappy, he tries to negotiate with them. He said, well, i tell you what I'll do. Let's, let's, let's come to a compromise. Every year at Passover, I release one prisoner to you. I'll give you either Jesus or I'll give you Barabbas. Barabbas was known for insurrection. He was a rebel. He was a thief and he was a murderer. He said, I'll give you Jesus or Nazareth. The Jews could have saved face and took Jesus. But they said, we'll take Barabbas. Pilate doesn't know what to do. So he again tries to compromise. He takes Jesus and this time he beats him. They put a robe on him. They beat him with their fists. They spit on him. They whip him with, with pieces of leather that have, have pieces of rock and pieces of glass, pieces of bone in it. They, they beat the skin off of his back. And a mutilated man, surely if they see a mutilated man, they will be satisfied. And he presents them to, to presents Jesus to the Jews again and once again proclaims, I find no fault. The Jews respond, then you're no friend of Caesar. Pilate takes Jesus in again, questions him one more time. You've got to say something, man. I'm about to give judgment on you. Come on, man, say something. Defend yourself. And Pilate once again stands before the Jews and for the third time says, I find no fault. What do you want me to do with an innocent man? I have beat him almost to the point of death. I have questioned him. I have sent him to Herod. Herod has said the same thing. He's not done anything. What do you want me to do? And the Jews said, we want you to crucify him. Let his blood be on us. Crucify him. And Pilate, having beat Jesus Pilate having said three times, I find no fault in Jesus. Pilate having heard that Herod found no fault in Jesus. Pilate is so indecisive that he does the only thing he can think to do. I need to wash my hands and get rid of this man. And he delivers him into the hands of the soldiers to be crucified. At least three times Pilate proclaims he finds no fault but he's unable to make a stand against the Jews. He was supposed to be ruling them, but they were ruling him. I want you to notice a couple things about Pilate. I want you to notice quickly, first of all, the lot that he was given. The lot that he was given. Chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate asked a question. It has become a famous question. Pilate said unto him, speaking of Jesus, Pilate said unto Jesus, 
What is truth? During Pilate's first encounter with Jesus, he asked him a question. A question that was so important all four gospel writers record it. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? I think when Pilate first asked that question, he did so because a Jewish king would have been a threat to Rome. Pilate, however, was shocked by the answer Jesus gave. Jesus says this in John 18, 34. Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Another way to say that would be this. Are you saying this on your own, or did somebody else tell you about me? What Jesus is really asking is this. What kind of king are you looking for? Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? He said, well, what kind of king are you looking for? Because if Pilate was looking for a political king, then no, that was not Jesus. At least not yet. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. But not yet. But if he was looking for a spiritual king, then the answer was yes. I am the king of the Jews. I think when Pilate heard Jesus respond the way he did, something moved inside of Pilate. Because when Pilate left that judgment hall, he never could get away from that king of the Jews thing. In chapter 18, verse 38, he wants to know about truth. Tell me what is truth. I believe that was, that was more than just a question. I believe he's actually seeking for truth. In chapter number 19, verse 2, the soldiers put a purple robe and a crown of thorns on Jesus, the mock king. In chapter 19, verse 14, Pilate says to the crowd, Behold your king. In chapter 19, verse 15, he said, Shall I crucify your king? In chapter 19, verse 19, Pilate writes a sign, puts it on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I believe that he is mocking and making light of the fact that Jesus is King because he is troubled about Jesus being King. You can tell when somebody's troubled about something. People like to make light of things that bother them. That's the way they cope with it and deal with it. Add to this the fact that Matthew 27, 19 says that Pilate's wife comes to him and says, I have suffered some things in a dream because of this man. He is just, don't have anything to do with him. Pilate was troubled because what he was seeing and hearing. He was troubled because this man claimed to have a kingdom that was not in this world. He was troubled because this man claimed to be God. He was troubled because this man had appeared to his wife in a dream. He was troubled because of the light that was given to him. Light reveals things in darkness. And the darkness of Pilate's heart had the light of Jesus Christ shining in it. And it bothered him. He was troubled. There are a lot of people like Pilate today. They are troubled. They hear a gospel message and it troubles them. They hear a gospel song and it troubles them. They have a conversation with someone of faith and it troubles them. They see a preacher on television or on Facebook or on the radio and it troubles them. They are troubled because the light of the gospel is shining in their light, it is in their life, and it is revealing things to them they are uncomfortable with and they are bothered.
The gospel bothers people, friend. Because it's very confrontational. I see the light that he was given, but I see the de decision that he made. Matthew 27, 24 says this, Then Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a turmoil was made. And he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it. When Pilate sees that he cannot please the Jews, he agrees to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He has stated three times that there's no fault, and yet he agrees to crucifixion. I believe that Pilate is so troubled at this point that he just wants it over and done with. And so instead of standing for his convictions and standing up to the crowd, instead of following his feelings about Jesus, he gives in and has him crucified. But just before he does, the Bible says that he publicly takes a bowl of water and washes his hands. Symbolically, Pilate is saying, I believe Jesus is innocent. But Pilate also is unwilling to commit to that belief because he has him crucified. Now you stick with me right here for just a minute. There are many people that have heard about Jesus. They know about Jesus. They maybe even will agree about Jesus. But they're unwilling to commit to Jesus. They just want to be like Pilate. They don't really want to make a decision. Pilate doesn't want to release him, but he doesn't want to crucify him. So what he does is he washes his hands and says, I'm just going to get out of it, and you do what you want to do. But a no decision about Jesus is rejection of Jesus. By not committing to Christ, you are rejecting Christ. You say, well, I'll do it next Sunday. That means you reject Him this Sunday. You say, well, I'll do it another time. That means you're rejecting Him this time. Pilate doesn't want to make a decision, but in not wanting to make a decision, he did make a decision. Pilate's in hell this morning. I have no doubt of that. As I preach this sermon, Pilate is burning in hell because he just didn't want to make a decision. Didn't want to commit to anything. Every time... You push off the decision of Jesus Christ. You are rejecting Jesus Christ. Okay, I see Pilate. He's a picture of indecision. Last of all, I see Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, I see a picture of forgiveness. A picture of forgiveness. Luke records this in Luke 23, 34. Jesus has now been crucified, hanging on the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. The final picture before us is the picture of Jesus Christ. For weeks we have been discussing the events leading to this moment. Jesus has prepared his disciples. He has been anointed by Mary. He has been betrayed by Judas. Everything is led to this moment. This is His hour. 
This is the reason he was born. Notice two things. Notice this. First of all, notice what happened. John 19, 17. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him. On either side one, and Jesus in the midst. After Pilate washes his hands, he turns Jesus over to the Roman soldiers for crucifixion. At this point, Jesus has already been beaten. His body is already open and bleeding. He is thirsty. He is tired. But the soldiers have no mercy. They put a wooden beam that would become his cross. They put a wooden cross beam on his back and tell him to carry it through the city and up the hill where he'll be crucified. Jesus was all God, but he was still all man. We know that at this time he is just so weak that he cannot carry his own cross. They're asking him to do something that he just can't do. His body won't let him. So they compel a man from the crowd to finish carrying his cross. Once on top of the hill, they lay Jesus on that cross. They drive stakes in his hands and in his feet. And they lift him up on a cross for him to suffocate to death. The scene before us in John 19 is one of the most gruesome scenes in all of Scripture. It is gruesome because of what they did to a human being. Let's just forget for a fact that this was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Son of God. What they did to another human being is unthinkable. For them to be amused as they would blindfold Him and smite Him with their fist. And force him to guess who it was that did it. And when he didn't guess correctly, they would smite him again. For them to take a crown of thorns and push it down on his head and hit it with a reed and force it down even further so that the thorns poked through his skin and over his eyes. For them to put him over a stump and beat him until his, his bones were exposed. I... Psalm 22, the Messianic Psalm, said that I can see all of my bones, they stare back at me. For then to then take Him and literally nail Him to a cross and hang Him there until He suffocated to death. It is unthinkable that they could do all of this to one human being. It is gruesome because what they did to a human being, but it is gruesome because of the reality that he had done nothing worthy of this. The Jews knew that he was innocent. They made up charges. Pilate knew he was innocent. He proclaimed it three times. Yet in spite of that, here he is. He is bleeding and he is beaten and he is dying. And they knew he was innocent. Oh, I see what happened. They mutilated, they beat, and they crucified an innocent man. But not only what happened, but why it happened. 
Again, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I learned this week, I didn't know this, I don't know how I've missed this, but I learned this week that crucifixion, crucifixion was such an awful death that the Romans wouldn't even crucify their own. They wouldn't crucify Roman citizens. Um, crucifixion was reserved for the lowest sorts of criminals. For, for a Roman citizen even to be crucified, he had to be just the absolute lowest scum of society to, to commit a heinous crime. The shame of crucifixion and the suffering of crucifixion was unimaginable. The Jews committed capital punishment by stoning. Can you imagine throwing rocks at somebody until they die? But crucifixion was worse. So they wanted him to be crucified. If crucifixion was that bad, then we have to ask the question, why did that happen? Why did this happen? I submit to you this morning that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified so that He could offer forgiveness of sins to the entire world. Father, forgive them. Jesus died so that all men, all women, could be forgiven. Isn't it interesting? The Bible says that when Pilate put that sign, that plaque on the cross, testifying of what his crime was, what crime he had committed, worthy of death. The Bible says that he wrote, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. What's interesting though is that Pilate wrote it in Greek, in Hebrew, and Latin. Do you know what that meant? That meant that anybody that could read at that time, anybody that could read at that time could have been able to read that sign and know who that man was. Pilate said, let's put it in a language Everybody can read it. The Jews can read it in Hebrews. The philosophers can read it in Greek. And the common man spoke Latin. Let's put it in Latin. Why? Because Jesus was dying for the whole world. They hung Him up on a cross outside of the city. This was Passover. It was filled to capacity. There's people from all over the world there for Passover. They said, let's hang him right outside of the city so everybody that passes by can see him. Why did they put that sign so that everybody could read it? Why did they hang him there so that everybody could see it? I'll tell you why. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. He wanted the whole world to see and to know this was the King of the Jews. This was the Son of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I submit to you, Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. In fact, forgiving sinners was so important, Jesus called a time out and stopped right in the middle of dying because the thief on one side of Him had a change of heart. A few minutes ago, he was railing on him and, and making fun of him and mocking him. Something happened inside of him, and he said, no, wait a minute. 
This guy might be who he says he is. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, okay, time out. I'm going to stop dying. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Stop long enough so that he could forgive a sinner. Multiple cries are given from the cross. Jesus speaks to his mother. He speaks to a disciple. He speaks to his father. Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But when we come to the end, he speaks and says, I'm thirsty. At this point, he's been hanging on the cross for hours. He is struggling to breathe. Much of the blood has already exited his body. I would imagine that his throat is dry and he can barely speak at this point. So I, I, I'm going to imagine that I am thirsty wasn't a cry, but it was a whisper. And as he whispered, I thirst. One of the Roman soldiers standing nearby sees this mutilated man and has enough sympathy that he dips a sponge in vinegar and holds it up on a reed so that Jesus can get a drink. The drink was not enough to quench his thirst, but it was enough for him to cry one last time. And with that, just enough in his throat, he pulls himself up, gets his lungs full of air, and he says, It is finished! That phrase, it is finished, it is, it is the word testelestai. That word testelestai, that word means it is finished or it is complete. A slave would say to his master at the end of the day, the master would say, have you done all of your chores today? And he might respond, Tetelestai. I've completed the work you gave me to do. It would, it would be said by a Jewish priest as he took an offering and he examined it to make sure that it was without spot and without blemish. And the Jewish priest, after examining it, might say, Tetelestai. It is perfect. It would be said by a merchant in the city as they as they bargained and as a piece of uh, food or a piece of fabric was purchased and the bill was paid, the merchant would say, Tetelestai, it is paid in full. And Jesus on that cross said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Father, I've completed the work you gave me to do. Tetelestai, it is perfect. He was the perfect spotless Lamb of God. Tetelestai, I have paid it in full. I owed a debt I could not pay. And it was growing every day. But Jesus paid my debt on Calvary. Jesus paid in full the debt of sin that you owed. Now the only thing He's asking from you and from me is to believe. He did the work. He finished the work. He don't need your help in the work. He did it all. Now He's just asking you to believe. I'm going to have Brother Scott come. We're going to bow our head and close our eyes. We're going to give